The following message is brought to you by the teaching and preaching ministry of the Ambassador Baptist Church and Pastor Joshua Ermler. John chapter number 10, the Bible says, starting in verse number 7, Then said Jesus unto them again, Verily, verily, I say unto you, I am the door of the sheep. All that ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved, and he shall go in and out and find pasture. The thief cometh not, but for to steal, and to kill, and to destroy. I am come, that they might have life, and that they might have it more abundantly. This morning, pastors are going to bring a message simply entitled, I Am the Door. Once again, thank you for coming on out and being a part of our services at Ambassador Baptist Church. At the end of the service, we're going to have an opportunity to have a time of baptism. And uh, I think that's probably why everybody's sitting on this side of the building. I feel like I'm going to have to preach over here, and they're all trying to get close to the baptistry and things a little bit there. But uh, we're looking forward uh, just to baptizing some of those who are following the Lord uh, in believer's baptism. We'll explain a little bit more about that here uh, at the end of the service. Over the last couple of weeks, we have been in a series of sermons uh, that we've simply entitled, I Am Jesus. And, And throughout this series, we've been going through the Gospel of John, looking at all the places where Jesus says, I am, and then he fills in the blank with some type of metaphor. Uh, He uses visual imagery to try to help us more deeply understand who he is. As we said last week, the reality is it's very difficult for our finite minds to comprehend the infinite nature of our God. And so Jesus Christ, in his wisdom, used metaphors to help us wrap our minds around exactly who he was for us as believers. And so a couple of weeks ago, we looked at the passage where Jesus declared himself to be the bread. And because he is the bread, we can be satisfied. And what a wonderful, wonderful promise that that is. We've been moving through different portions of of the Gospel of John, looking at these different metaphors. And today we have the opportunity here in the Gospel of John, chapter number 10, and uh, verse number 7 and 8, to focus on the metaphor where Jesus describes himself as the door. Uh, What does that mean for us as human beings? What are the implications of the fact that Jesus declares himself to be the door? And so we're going to unpack that a little bit here today. And then at the end of the service, we'll have the opportunity of having here a baptism service. I will tell you, if you're visiting with us today, this morning's message is going to be a little bit more academic in nature, uh, maybe than normal. Uh, There are a couple of things that I feel the Holy Spirit leading me to address, and so we're going to be really all over the scriptures. Have your Bibles ready. Uh, We'll probably get to 20 or 30 passages here this morning as we have the opportunity just to unpack some really important, uh, what I would refer to as some doctrinal truth uh, in this passage, and so I hope that you'll be ready to do that, and uh, it'll take on much more of a teaching flavor uh, than maybe we would normally be used to here on a Sunday morning uh, service. As we have the opportunity to um, study these particular passages, we want to be very careful as we, in our own Bible study, as we move through a text, when we interpret metaphors and visual imagery. 
Uh, How many of you are thankful that the Bible does use a lot of narrative, it uses a lot of metaphor, it uses a lot of visual imagery to help us kind of uh, understand to some degree exactly what's going on in the scriptures. And and Jesus often would use parables and he would tell stories and he would give uh, imagery regarding who he is. And it really does help us to get our finite minds around what's happening. Now at the same time, we also have to be very careful to allow the context of a passage of scripture scripture to give us the interpretation that we need to glean from that passage. If we're not careful uh, in our own naivety, I guess you could say, we could make these metaphors basically mean anything we wanted them to mean. Because they're visual, because they are, to some degree, subjective in their imagery. And so it's important that we study the entire context to help us give us an accurate interpretation of what exactly Jesus is attempting to teach us here from these passages. The passage that was just read a moment ago can tend to be a little bit confusing. You say, why is this particular passage confusing? Well, we didn't read, but uh, a moment ago when Pastor Nick read from verses number 7 down through verses number 10, Jesus is literally repeating himself. You say, what is he repeating? If you read verses number 1 through verses number 6, you would find that Jesus gives the exact same story that he gives in verses number 7, 8, 9, and 10, all right? He gives us the same thing. That's why in verse number 7, look down, it says, Then said Jesus unto them, notice the next word, again, (laughs) you know? You say, why are you bringing this up? In this particular passage, there was a difficulty for these disciples to get their heads around it. To the point, notice the end of verse 6. This parable spake Jesus unto them, notice this, but they, his disciples, understood not the things they were which he spake unto them. Then said Jesus unto them again. All right, so here's what I want you to understand. There is a little complicated nature to what Jesus Christ is about to teach here, literally to the point that the disciples who were there the first time around didn't understand what in the world he was talking about. So if the disciples who understood the right context, who lived in that sphere of influence, if even those who were listening to him had a hard time understanding, how much more us 2,000 years removed, not in that actual context, might have difficulty wrestling through this? You say, what kind of difficulties? Well, the reality is, is Jesus is speaking here in this narrative. He's using a story. Within this subjective story, he gives himself to be two metaphors in this story. So this is a little bit different than even some of the other passages he talked to. Because if you move through verse number one and verses number two and verses number three, at first he refers to himself as the shepherd. All right. And then you move down a few verses later and then he says, I am the door. And so it's one story, and within the context of this one singular story, he is both shepherd and he is door. And so that can lend itself to a little bit of confusion from the offset. Uh, different preachers, as they'll communicate, sometimes people talk about, he, as they talk about this door to the pen where the sheet would come into, there have been some who have mistakenly maybe said that this pen refers specifically to heaven. And, and the reality is, 
in, in an intrinsic sense, he's not even talking about heaven right here, all right? Now, that might be implicitly applied, and we'll kind of come back around to that. But you say, well, how come you say he's not specifically uh, talking about heaven? Verse number 9 gives us this context. He says, I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, all right? So he says, enter in, he shall be saved. Now, notice this. And what else will happen if he enters by Christ? He says, and shall go in and out, Okay, so if this was specifically speaking of indirectly heaven, Jesus wouldn't be leading people into heaven and then leading people out of heaven and then leading people into heaven and leading people out of heaven. You say, why are you even bringing this up? Because context is very, very important as we're studying the scripture. If we want to have an accurate understanding as to what Jesus is trying to teach us as believers, we've got to get a proper context. We have to see this thing rather than just kind of projecting our own ideologies into a text and eisegeting a scripture, we want to exegete and allow the word of God to exit out its true meaning into our hearts and into our lives. Like I said a minute ago, there implicitly, we'll come back around it because of the word salvation, it will imply eternal uh, that uh, heaven, but it is not the uh, accurate, if I would say the most specific interpretation. You say, what exactly is this particular passage referring to? It's really verse number 10 that gives us the full context context as to what Jesus is talking about. He says, the thief cometh not but to steal and to kill and to destroy. He says, I, Jesus, am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. So specifically within the context of this passage, Jesus is referring to the type of life that a believer who is in Christ and Christ is in them can expect to experience, all right? And so this is why he's going to talk and he's going to say, hey, those who enter in by me, yes, one, they're going to be saved. Two, they'll be able to enter in. Three, they'll be able to enter out. I will lead them. I will guide them. I will protect them. I will provide for them as he moves through this particular passage, all right? So I want you to see his way of a theme here today. Christ gives us access to much more than we could possibly ever imagine. As a pastor, the more I study the Word of God and dive into its pages, the more I become aware of all the riches that were given to us in the person of Jesus Christ. Like literally, we've used examples before. When someone comes to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ and they put their trust and faith in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone, the Bible says in that moment was imputed unto us all righteousness and a riches of inheritance, the Apostle Paul tells us. Oftentimes, we as believers don't even fully realize all that was given to us in Christ. And so today we're going to take a moment and we're going to look specifically at uh, three areas that are specifically mentioned in this particular passage that Christ gives us access to because he is the door, all right? And so let's just kind of dive into this here today. I want you to see, first of all, Christ is our access to salvation. Christ is our access to salvation, As I said a moment ago, here we see in this passage, it says in verse number uh, eight, uh, I'm I'm sorry, in verse number nine, I am the door by me. If any man enter in, he shall be, here's the word, saved. He should be saved. I want you to see, first of all, Christ is our access to salvation. Let's get our historical context on for a moment. 
Back in this day and age, shepherding was a very uh, common way of making a living, all right? And so outside of Jerusalem and even in the territory known as Israel, uh, on the hills where, where was a lot of the farming would take place because the soil was fertile, in the actual valley itself, there was a lot of rock, all right? And so in the valley, much rock. It was, it was more difficult in an agrarian culture uh, to see a lot of harvest take place there on the bedrock with all the rock and all the gravel. And so a lot of farming didn't happen there. If we have farmers in this room, you would understand where there's a lot of rock, where there's a lot of gravel, that would make it a little bit more difficult uh, to grow crops. And so back in ancient times, it was in the valley floor that much of the farm the, much of the shepherding would be done. And so they would literally build these pens out of rock and out of stone, and they would build these things, and these shepherds would then keep their sheep in these areas. And the ground was a little bit more rocky. It wasn't real conducive to farming, and so they used that area for shepherding. What was interesting in those day and age, and you can even see some of the remnants of that today if you were to travel there to the Holy Land, you would find that these particular pens, if you want to call them that, did not have any doors on them. They just had openings. And so they would build the walls to protect from the uh, enemies or any wolves that would try to maybe steal and eat and destroy those sheep, but they would leave a door and they would not build a door in its place because what you will find is in those ancient cultures among the shepherds there, literally the shepherd would become the door. And so in the evening there, that shepherd would literally lie himself in the doorway and he would become the door for the sheep. So if a sheep wanted to come into the pen, literally, he would have, the shepherd would have to let him through. If the sheep wanted to get out, that, sh- that uh, shepherd would have to get out of the way and let that sheep through. Because the shepherd himself was the door. Which leads us here to our first point, and that is this. Christ is our door, and he is what gives us access to salvation. It says right here, it says in verse 9, I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved. And so the first thing we see is Christ being the door. He is the door to salvation. He is the door that allows us to be saved. Saved from what? Well, as the scriptures will teach us, that there is, a, there is a punishment, there is a penalty for our own sin, for our wrongdoing, for our, I know we don't like to use this term, but for our rebellion against God, there are ramifications. The wrath of God, Romans tells us, abides upon those individuals. Coming judgment looms. Coming destruction looms for the soul that has not found peace with God through his son, Jesus Christ. And so the Bible says the wrath of God abides upon them. You see, our God is a just God. He is not a God that can simply wink at sin and pretend like it didn't exist. Our God is not a God that simply sweeps rebellion and carnality and sin underneath the carpet and says, ah, it's no big deal. You see, our God is a just God. Our God is a holy God. Our God is a righteous God. And because of that, He is always just. There are consequences. There is punishment for sin. But the Bible says that Jesus Christ came to be our Savior. Literally to be our propitiation. 
So that's a big fancy word. What does that mean? It means that Jesus came to literally take the punishment that our sin deserved. Jesus came to take the consequences of our rebellion. And so on the cross of Calvary, when Jesus bled and Jesus died, he was literally taking all the punishment that your sin deserved and all the punishment that my sin deserved, and he took all the punishment upon his body. Can I say this? And all the wrath of God was poured out upon Jesus Christ so that all punishment, all consequences were absorbed in the person of Jesus Christ to the point where Jesus was able to cry out, It is finished. What does that mean? He didn't say, I am finished. That's not what he said. It. What is? Redemptive's plan. Redemption's plan. From the beginning of creation, God set in order the fact that the gospel would come to redeem mankind. That Jesus, God, would come in the flesh, live his life as a perfect man and then die on the cross to absorb and take the consequences for our sin and so when john chapter number 10 says through christ we're saved through christ we escape judgment through christ the wrath of god is absorbed that is why he's saying in christ you can be saved rescued from the eternal spiritual consequences for our sin. Matthew chapter number 7 verse 13 says it this way. Enter ye in at the straight gate. Wide is the gate and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction. And and many there be which go in thereat. Because straight is the gate and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life. Remember we're talking about life. Verse number 10 and few there be that find it. Let me define this for a moment. What is that broad way? What's the broad way that so many people look to to find salvation? It is the broad way of doing. You see, most of humanity believes that if they're going to be saved, if they're going to save themselves, that they've got to do something. And most people in America seek to save themselves through religion. If I can just do this for God, if I can just do that for God, if I just do those things for God, then I can save myself. I, 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 can, I can earn God's favor. See, the broad way is that way of trying to do in order to save oneself. That is the broad way. The reality is there are other people who try to save themselves in different ways. They, they try to save themselves through pleasure. There are people who think, man, I'm going to make my life count. I'm going to save my life. If I can just get successful enough and if I can just get rich enough and if I can just get beautiful enough, my life will matter. My life will be significant. My life will be important. They'll find self-worth, and so they seek a self-salvation process, not through religion, but through some other means. And there are people all across our world that are seeking to save themselves through doing. If I can just get smarter, if I could just do more, if I could just build a more successful business, then I'll feel like I'm saved. I'll feel like this condemnation doesn't rest upon me. While many people look to religion and doing religious 
things to earn salvation, those of us who are Christians believe that there is nothing we can do to earn salvation, that salvation is a free gift. This is why Titus chapter number 3 verse 5 tells us that salvation is not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saves us. Salvation is a gift of mercy. Ephesians chapter number 2 and verse number 8 says, For by grace, grace is God's unmerited favor, His undeserved favor. For by grace are you saved, how? Through faith. By simple belief. We get His grace by faith. Notice it goes on to say, And that not of yourselves is the gift of God. Not of works lest any man should boast. Salvation is through Christ. It is not through your man-made attempts to save yourself. It is not through your religious attempts to save yourself. No individual can save themselves. And so we see that Jesus is teaching in the Gospel of John, chapter number 10, according to his word here, that it is our access to salvation is found in Christ's finished work for us, not in our work for him. And can I say this? That's some really good news. That's really good news. Because if we are left to ourselves... If we would have to try to save ourselves, the reality is most of us would be in some pretty hot water. You say, then why do people attempt to save themselves? And why won't people let Christ save them? Oftentimes it's just pride. We're kind of Americans, self-made individuals. We like to think we can do this thing ourselves. We don't need help. Hey, we got this thing. It makes, us, it makes us feel good about ourselves when we can feel like we're doing it. But Christ is our access to salvation. But let's keep going through our text here. This is not the only aspect here that we see that God gives us access to here in this passage. He says, I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, what? Number one, he shall be saved. Notice number two, and shall go in and out and find pasture. Now, To go back to the metaphor, back in those ancient biblical times, there would be that stone wall, that hedge, that was used to keep the enemy out. That is why Jesus is going to refer in verse number 10, there's others, thieves, that come to steal, to kill, and to destroy. There are those that want to destroy the sheep. There are those that want to hurt the sheep. He refers to this in verses number 1 and verses number 2 as well. And so he's trying to help us understand here this metaphor that in Christ there is protection. In Christ, there is safety. In Christ, there is security. And I want to say to you, resting in Christ, there is an abundant amount of security in Him. The moment you start to look for security in your financial position, there will come a moment where that financial position will stop giving you a sense of security. If you look for security in your job, well, it's, it, you know, job security sometimes is the term that we'll use. The reality is oftentimes that's just an illusion. There is no ultimate security. There's no ultimate protection. There's no ultimate safety in our work. Sometimes we look for safety. Oftentimes as, as married people, we'll look for a sense of security, a, a sense of protection in our spouse. 
And the reality is that even a spouse can't provide us ultimate security. Even a spouse cannot offer us ultimate safety. And so anytime we look to something smaller than Jesus to give us what the Bible declares only Christ can give us, we're setting ourselves up for failure because there's safety and protection and security in one, and his name is Jesus. I would like to take a moment here this morning and talk about a specific aspect of security that I believe the Bible teaches that we have in Christ. It is an eternal sort of security that we have in the person of Jesus And so I'd like to take some time just to basically read some scriptures. I realize in the day and age in which we live, there's a lot of controversy around what I'm about to speak of. I believe that the Bible teaches much on it, and as I have studied through this, the reality is I can see from one person's perspective how they might come to one conclusion, but I also can see from other passages of the Bible how somebody else might come to a different position. And so what I'd like to do is I've taken the opportunity just to literally, I've spent years kind of studying this, as many of you have as well. I want to share with you some scripture passages that lead us to believe that, you know what, there is such a thing as security in Christ, even for our salvation and that we can have hope in the person of Jesus Christ that when we put our faith and trust in him and him alone that there is a security there is a safety there is a protection that we have in the person of Jesus Christ not just in the here and now but for all of eternity and so rather than just giving you a whole lot of commentary I'd like to spend a few moments just reading some scripture to you I'd like to share with you what does the Bible teach on this subject And like I said, my heart is not to get in kind of a spiritual theological debate with somebody in this room. I just want to take some opportunities to share scripture. I want to take the opportunity just to show you here's what the scriptures say and and maybe even some scriptures that might lead you to believe something else and, and possibly what the scriptures could be inferring by those particular passages. Let's dive into this. As we're talking about, is it even reasonable for the believer to expect that there can be security, safety, and protection eternally? Yeah, we understand in the here and now that Jesus Christ protects, he's safe, he keeps us secure. But can we really believe that there is an eternal type of security that Jesus Christ offers to believers who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone? Let's begin to read. The Bible says in Romans chapter number 4, and this will kind of lay the foundation. But to him, or to him that worketh not, notice this, to him that worketh not, but believeth. So let's start here, because we're going to lay a foundation. To him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, that's Jesus Christ, his faith is counted for righteousness. Now, I, I, I want to start there, because if we're not careful, we can begin to get the idea that it is our effort that earned for us salvation. And I just want to say, theologically, your effort did not earn you salvation. Salvation was gotten to you by the finished work of Jesus Christ on your behalf. We call it, in theological worlds, the great exchange. That is, we give Jesus our unrighteousness by faith, and then he gives us his imputed righteousness as grace. That is to say, he offers us justification. At the moment of salvation, that word justifieth the ungodly. That word literally means just as if I'd never sinned. 
To him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth, the one who makes it as if you've never sinned, it even goes further than that. The word justify has implications as just as if you've always obeyed. So to him that worketh not, even though there's no works involved, but simply believeth on him that justify, that is the one who says, hey, it's just as if you've never sinned, just as if you've always obeyed the ungodly. How does this happen? By faith. His faith is counted for him for righteousness. And so our righteousness is not dependent upon some work that we accomplish. It's done through the justificational transaction that Jesus gives us on our behalf. This is where it starts. That's why uh, Titus says it's not by works of righteousness, which we have done. It's his mercy. It's not us. It's him. That's why Ephesians says, by grace, are you saved? Not through, he goes on to say, and not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works. I can take you to passage after passage after passage that explicitly implies that salvation has nothing to do with your work and it has nothing to do with your effort. It has everything to do with Christ's effort on your behalf. If I cannot do good works to get saved, then how can I do bad works to get unsaved? It's all of Jesus. Let's read some more. John chapter number 10, verse 28. And I give unto them, this is later on in the passage that we'll read, I give unto them, here's the phrase, eternal life. Now, I'll just pause there for just a second. Eternal assumes forever. If it wasn't going to be forever, then he would call it something different. The reason that the scriptures will so often use the phraseology eternal is because it is something that is ongoing and forever. He says, and they shall, and here's the word, never perish. Neither shall any man, notice this, pluck them out of my hand. Jesus says, when a believer comes to me, the spirit of God, the father puts them in my hand and nobody can get them out. How many of you ever played that game with your kids and maybe you put a dollar in your hand and you told your son or you told your you know, uh, nephew or something, hey, if you can open up my hand and get the dollar, you can have it. You ever played that game before? Man, they're wrestling, pulling, trying to pry the fingers back. And this is kind of the visual imagery that's being given to us here. The Bible says, hey, there might be some who might try to pluck this thing out and try to open up this hand. But he says, no man is able to pluck them out of my father's hand. That would imply even you. 2 Timothy chapter number 2, verse 13. Even if we believe not, yet he abideth faithful, and he cannot deny himself. Oh. 1 Peter chapter number 1, verse 4. He says this inheritance of salvation is incorruptible and undefiled. And it fadeth not away. It's reserved in heaven for you. And perhaps you might ask, well, what about when people falter in their faith? What do we do with people like that? How do we, how do we, how do we kind of navigate that? And the reality is, yes, believers sometimes become discouraged. There are even times where they falter in their faith. John the Baptist, how many of you remember him? Uh, In fact, uh, Jesus Christ said of him, he was the greatest to be born among women. Here's what he had to say at the end of his life. He calls his disciples and he's discouraged. He starts to waver a little in his faith. And if you read the passage in Matthew chapter number 11, he begins to question if Jesus is even the Christ. Yet later on, Jesus is going to say greatest. 
How many of you remember Peter had a little lapse in his faith to the point where he literally denied Christ, cursed him? Ephesians, I, I could go on Lot. How many, Lot's not the most beautiful example of an of a, of a, you know, awesome Christian. He's the one who got wrapped up in the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, offered his daughters to get raped, eventually moved into the caves without no money, no time, no anything along those lines, and has incestual relationships with his daughter. And then in the New Testament, the Bible says, and just Lot, the believer... <laughs> 4,000 years, 3,000 years later. And, and just Lot, saved Lot. Why? Because what the Bible understands is that our eternal security, our salvation is not anchored to works of righteousness which we have done. And that's good news. I'm telling you what, you show me a Christian who understands that their eternal security is secure. It causes you to live differently. There's a, there's, a, there's a freedom that comes in knowing this. Let's just keep reading. The Bible says in Ephesians chapter number 1, verse 13, and you are sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. The moment you got saved, the Bible says the Holy Spirit of God came upon you and it literally sealed you with the seal of his promise. So when the Holy Spirit gets put inside of you, that Holy Spirit acts as a promise. It's God's promise that says, this one's mine. It's like a stamp of approval. Uh, back in ancient times, oftentimes kings would use a seal on a letter and it would seal that letter and basically that seal said, hey, this is officially mine. And that's what the seal, he says the Holy Spirit inside of you is that seal. It's that stamp that says mine. God places a stamp on those who put their faith and trust in Christ and that is his. He goes on to say, which is the earnest. We don't use that phrase a lot. We would tend to use another word in our modern vernacular. We would tend to use the word uh, down payment. So uh, we we could literally say, which is the down payment of our inheritance. Literally, God says, here's the spirit of God. This one's mine. I'll give you the down payment until, notice this, the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of his glory. Ephesians chapter number four, verse 30 goes on to say, sealed unto the day of redemption. Now, if believers did not have the ability to be secure in their salvation, the sealing could not truly be unto the day of redemption. It might be till the day of sinning. It might be till the day of apostasy. It might be till the day of disbelief. It might be till the day of rejection. It could be the, till the day of a lot of things. But in order for the Bible to say unto the day of Jesus Christ would have to imply theologically a ceiling. First Peter chapter number 1, verse 5, it says they are kept by the power of God. You're not kept by your own power. You're not kept by your own strength. You're not kept by your own abilities. You're not kept by your own finagling. You're kept by the power of God, by his finished work through faith and a salvation ready to be revealed in the last times. The power of God holds on to you. Hebrews chapter number 12, verse two, I love this. He says, looking unto Jesus, notice this, he is the author of our faith. 
But it doesn't end there. He doesn't just say, I'm the author of your faith. He says, I'm also the finisher of it. Yeah, I'm going to start this thing. But I'm also going to finish it as well. Man, I'm telling you, this is good news. This is such good news. This is a liberating news to know that Jesus authors it and Jesus finishes it. Philippians chapter number 1, verse 6 The Apostle Paul says this, I'm confident. What, Paul, what are you confident in? I'm confident in this very thing that he which hath begun a good work in you, who does the good work in us, we we talk a lot about this, who who does good work in us and through us, it's the person of who? Jesus Christ. He who hath begun the good work in you, he'll perform it all the way until Jesus Christ. He'll do it. He'll complete it. He'll finish it until the day of Jesus Christ. Christ. We can be confident of this thing. Jude chapter number 24. Now unto him, not unto us, not unto you, unto him that is able to keep us from falling and present us faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. Exceeding joy. Hebrews 13 5 says he'll never leave us. He'll never forsake us. Some people might say, well, I understand that Jesus Christ forgives all of our past sins when we're saved. And how many of you are thankful that Jesus Christ has forgiven your past sins? At that moment where you got saved and you repented of your sins, put your faith in Jesus Christ, how many of you, oh, praise God, that he, man, he forgave me of those past sins. Praise the Lord for that. That's a wonderful thing. And then, but somebody will say, but what about my future sins? Just kind of a little food for thought here. But when Jesus went to the cross, all of your sins were future tense. (laughs) They're all in the future. And he forgave them. And he gave you his imputed righteousness. He justified you and declared it's just as if you'd never sinned. Just as if you'd always obeyed. And he gave you that, that seal. He gave you that inheritance. If there's nothing we could do to earn it, is there anything we can do to lose it? Now, I will say this. The Bible's very clear, because I, I know some people, man, I mean, everybody who says the name of Jesus is going to heaven? Is everybody who says the name of Jesus saved? Is everybody who declares the name of Christ a believer? No, the Bible is very clear. Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter in the kingdom of God. That is to say, there are individuals who will declare with their lips something that has never authentically happened in their heart. And so sometimes from our human vantage point, and I understand this, we're humans and we kind of get our perspectives and we tend to look at things through our own kind of worldviews and things like that. Even from my perspective, I've had times where I've looked at somebody and I thought for sure that person has lost their salvation. I mean, that person was so on fire for God. That person was just so faithful. That person was just so, they, obviously God's hand was upon them and, and obviously something happened. They, what else, what, how, how else can we explain it? They lost their salvation. And I, I get that. From our vantage point, it would be easy to see, as from our perspective, yeah, it looks like maybe they lost their salvation. The, the reality is probably what happened in that moment is they never had the Spirit of Christ continuing what we say Christ begins. Some theologians will refer to it as maybe the perseverance of the saints, that grace. 
So not everyone who declares the name of Jesus is saved. Now, the Bible's pretty clear. It's not our job to pick and choose which ones are and which ones not. Jesus says in that day, he'll separate the wheat from the tares. He'll take care of this. But there is a reality that not everybody who goes to church is a believer. In fact, I'm, I'm very much aware that there are people who know how to talk about Jesus, who know how to declare the name of Jesus, who are not authentically saved. Because salvation is not an articulation of your tongue. Salvation is the fruit of a faith in the person and finished work of Jesus Christ. It's his doing, his grace by faith. This is one of the reasons 2 Corinthians tells us as believers, the Apostle Paul talking to believers said this. He says, examine yourselves whether you be in the faith. Are you trying to save yourself? Are you trying to earn salvation? Are you trying to earn your way to heaven? We need to examine. My friend, it's not our job to keep ourselves secure. That's Christ's job. And our great hope in our spiritual life is not that we'll not let go of God. Man, that's my hope. I just got to hang on. Your hope is not that you'll not let go of God. Your hope is that he'll never let go of you. That's good news. You say, ah, man, I struggle with this. And I, I want to say to you, I am not here trying to shove something in your face. I understand that there are people in this room who disagree with me right here, right now. I, I'm aware of that. All I'm trying to do is I'm just trying to get up and share some scripture. And I want to say to you, those of you who maybe you would say, hey, everything, Pastor, you've said, I would say amen to. We want to be very careful that we don't get so arrogant as to think that somebody who would come to a different conclusion than us on this issue is somehow an ignoramus. Like, they're retarded. How could they ever get to a different position than this? I mean, you wonder all the scriptures. Because I am going to be honest, there are several scriptures that are a little bit more confusing. And I'm going to be humble enough to admit that on a surface glance at a couple of passages that I could take you to, that at first glance, it kind of causes you to scratch your head a little bit. So I'm not so arrogant and I'm not so proud as to say that, well, anybody who looks at this thing differently or sees something differently, they're, they're retarded because I realize there are some well-studied people and as they interpret something in their own hearts, they might come to a different conclusion. But here's what, I, here's what I'd want to say to you. For those of you who would find yourself kind of leaning into this in, an, in another way, I, I would first of all just want to say to you, be careful. Now, for those of you who don't realize this, not everybody who doesn't believe in eternal security believes that they're trying to, they've got to maintain it. You know, they've got to work their way to heaven. I mean, and I'm a, I study, I look through these things theologically. The reality is we like to project that there's like two sides to this thing, and there really isn't, all right? If I were to be honest with you, I don't have time to go through all the multiple positions on this thing. But it's not just like, oh, there's us over here who believe in eternal security, and there's those over there who believe that you've got to work your way to heaven, it's, it's definitely more nuanced than that theologically. Now, that's not to say that I don't believe exactly that which I've taught. 
But I say this to bring a sense of humility to recognize there are a few scripture passages that are a little bit more difficult to wade through if you have an opposite worldview on this thing. And so for those of us over here, let's be very humble. Because there are some well-meaning, well-studied individuals who would come to a different conclusion. Now I want to say to those that would be leaning in this other direction... Be extremely careful because the moment that you're looking and you're trying, hey, I've got to do this or do that or do those things to get to heaven. Now, that's not the only reason people disagree with eternal security. Like I said, I'm not going to go through all the different perspectives. There are people who don't believe in eternal security who also believe that Jesus Christ is our finished work. There's no works that we can add to it. But I would say to you, be very careful. It is very easy from this position to get to a place in your heart where before you know it, you find your dependence on your work for God that gives you your hope for salvation. Rather than finding your full hope in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Now, I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm humble in this and here's why. Because I do not have the time right now to go and address all six perspectives theologically on this and I could I'll go I'll go to each perspective and I'll go to the word of God and we could unpack this for the sake of time I literally do not have time so I am being a little bit I'm broad brushing this thing a little bit and I know I am okay for those of you who are like ah you you know you haven't perfectly described my position I know that okay but for sake of time all right I'm just I'm 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 speaking to be very careful that in your rejection of eternal security, that the posture of your heart does not become one of dependence on your work for God that gives you your ultimate hope for eternal security. That's the danger. Because the moment your heart begins to lean into your works to provide you your ultimate hope for eternal security and salvation, you've leaned into a works-based posture of salvation and regeneration. And there are many passages that would talk at that moment you make the power of Christ of none effect. And that's, that's the, the word of warning. And this is why we go through, I will say kind of in closing, if you would like more information, because I've got to move on. I want you to know, stop by the guest services, send uh, the office an email. I've already prepared a very lengthy, uh, just kind of what I would call kind of an in-depth paper on the subject. And on that particular paper, I put a lot of the other passages that I won't get into at this time, uh, passages such as from Hebrews. There's two passages there that oftentimes people will go to and say, well, look, it really looks. And there's a, a couple passages in some other places that oftentimes people will tend to jump through. And, and to be honest, I'll give you kind of that perspective uh, on a theological perspective. How, how do we navigate through uh, some of the more difficult passages that on the surface appear to give this impression. And if you want that, I will make that available to you. We'll send it out to you uh, this week, all right? And I, I, want, I, wanna, I wanna just at least let you know, hey, this is, this is what we give to you. This is what we wanna offer to you. And I understand that as we're studying through these things, don't take my word for nothing. <laughs> Seriously. Man, study the word of God for yourself. Well, pastor said it. That must be true. No. <laughs> Get in the word yourself. 
That's what we want here. We don't, I don't want a bunch of people who just believe exactly what I believe. I want people here who are people of the book. People who study this thing out for themselves. And I'm okay with having somebody who uses semantics a little bit different than me. I, I will say this. There are several times where I'll sit down with somebody and I'll, talk, I'll, I'll use the word eternal security and they'll be like, ah, I'm not uncomfortable with that. And then we'll get talking. And the reality is we believe the exact same thing. We just use different words to get there. And every once in a while, that's a reality. But it's an area that I think is important for us to focus on. Important for us to, to move through. You say, well, why, how did you come to the position you've come through? As I took all these passages and waded through them, much like if you were in a court of law, and in a courtroom you had to prove something to be true, the reality is, I don't think any jury is like, dogmatically, we were there, we saw it with our own eyes, this is what we know for sure. That's not what, they, they take evidence. They weigh evidence. And then they make a choice based on the evidence that's given to them. And that's what I've had to do on this particular subject. Take all the evidence. In my mind, from my worldview, as I can dive into this scripture, the reality is I feel like the evidence leans heavily to what I've described to you today. But I'm not going to imply that there are not some passages that are a little bit more difficult to wrestle through and maybe I haven't fully grasped it yet. But because there is so much that waits to this side, this is why positionally I wait to this side. And maybe in my one state I'll get some glorified mind and I'll be you know, so smart, I'll be able to tell you every passage and exactly what it means and why it's wrong. I'm just going to be honest, I can't do that in this moment. But I feel so confident with the amount of Scripture and the weight of Scripture where Jude 1 tells us that the Word of God is of no private interpretation. So we don't take one text and we look at one text and say, well, look at this one. No, we've got to take Scripture as a contextual whole and then we allow our decisions to be weighted there, and that's what we've done. And so I would say I love each and every person here. And just because you did not, maybe haven't at this point landed where I land, do not think for a moment that I think you're retarded, or I think you're stupid, or I think you're arrogant. In fact, anytime I preach, that would be my heart. I realize we have some very intelligent people in this room. People who study the scriptures. People understand, people who learn, people who are growing. And I would never want to imply, just because it's something I say, that if you don't agree with what I say, then somehow you're a lunatic, all right? It's, it's not, that's not how we navigate things here. I would, I would encourage you to, like the Bereans, they were more noble because they searched the scriptures daily. Know the scriptures for yourself. Yes, I know we could find two or three passages that speak to this, but in the, in the contextual whole, what, where do we feel the Bible's weighted to? And there might be a couple of verses, honestly, we might not fully understand until we get to heaven. And I know maybe that doesn't make you feel very secure right now. You're like, pastor, you're supposed to, you're our pastor, you're supposed to know everything, you know? I, I'm going to tell you, I don't. <laughs> I, I can't explain away every single... You say, well, you went, to, you went to college for four years. Just be glad that when I graduated from college, I didn't stop learning and didn't stop growing, all right? And I hope the same for you, that you keep learning and you keep growing and allow these passages, take these. If you, I'll give you more. I, I, didn't, I wouldn't even have time to dive into all of the scripture passages that have led me to, 
lean into a position that's weighted in this way. If you have questions, feel free to see me after the service. I'll do my best to answer some because I realize to some degree, for some of you, I have created more questions than I have answers. But hopefully these scripture verses will be a help. Like I said, if you want to stop by guest services or you want to email the church offices, I'll send you some more, more kind of exhaustive notes on the subject here. But I would say this. At the end of the day, it's an incredibly good news to know that you are eternally secure. It's, 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 it's a wonderful thing to feel safe. And I know what the objections are. Man, if you tell people they're saved, they're on their way to heaven, how are you going to control their behavior? How are you going to make them do what you want them to do? Man, if, if you tell them you're not quite sure if they're going to make it or not, maybe they'd be more likely to obey you. <laughs> well, unless you haven't figured this out, I'm not trying to get people to obey me. <laughs> It's not really my end goal. All right? And I would say even a step further. There are some of us in here, and we are so comfortable with this concept of eternal security. I'll talk to you for just a moment here. You're like so confident of this thing. You know, hey, bless God, I'm eternally secure. Praise God. It's all of his grace that I appropriate by faith and faith alone. And that's your position. Praise God for it. And then some of you, when we talk about the exact same concept in reference to our spiritual maturity, you get uncomfortable with it. How do we grow spiritually? It's all of his grace appropriated by faith. It's the same pattern. And I've met people who over here are like totally confident, eternal security, I'm on my way to heaven, nothing can ever take that away. But then when it comes to their spiritual maturity, and then it's like, well, I got to do this, and I got to do those things, and I got to do these things, and I've got to do all this stuff so that I can earn this. And I'm just going to tell you the pattern, as you have therefore received Christ, how did we receive Christ? By grace, through faith. That pattern, as you have therefore received Christ, that's how we grow there, and that's how we walk therein. It's by grace through faith. If you're comfortable with it over here for salvation, then I would encourage you, it's probably okay to be comfortable with that concept for spiritual maturity as well. And if you're uncomfortable with it for spiritual maturity, like, I'm not as comfortable with it, then have grace on the people who are over here who are a little uncomfortable with it for salvation. All right? Christianity is a movement of good news. The good news of what Jesus Christ has done for you. Christ is our salvation. Christ is our access to salvation. Christ is our access to security. And then lastly, we're just going to, you know, I'm not even going to dive into this. Christ is our access to sanctification. Notice in verse number nine, he says, and shall go out and find pasture. One of the things that the good shepherd does is as we follow him, he leads us to provision. He leads us to find pasture. He gives us that which satisfies. He gives us that which feeds. And so here, this good shepherd not only gives us access in to the pen for protection, he leads us in, he leads us out. And so he leads us out. And in leading us out, he gives us a place to find pasture. He gives us to where we can find food and vegetation. Like, 
like I told you at the beginning of the sermon, oftentimes at the bottom of those valleys, they were very rocky. There wasn't a lot of vegetation. So there were often times where literally the shepherds would take those sheep and lead them out of that pen, that brick pen, and they would lead them to some pasture. They would lead them to some brook where they could satisfy their hunger, where they could satisfy their thirst. And, and that's another thing that the shepherd gives us access to is full and complete satisfaction, fulfillment, and contentment found in the person of Jesus Christ. He's enough to satisfy. That's why he says in verse number 10, I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. Abundant life here and now and the abundant life for here to come. This is what Jesus Christ gives us access to. Can I encourage you to anchor your hope for satisfaction in the giver, not in the gifts. In the, in the giver, the shepherd, he's the one who gives us our satisfaction. So our takeaway to here and we'll be done. I want to encourage us to access our abundance by faith. Access our abundance by faith. He's given abundantly to us salvation. He's given to us abundantly that protection, that security, that safety. He's given to us abundantly this, our, that satisfaction. So as we study through the Gospel of John, the I am of John tells us who we are. Think about that. The I am tells us who we are. In Christ we are saved. In Christ we are secure. And in Christ we are satisfied. We're satisfied. Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by the teaching and preaching ministry of the Ambassador Baptist Church. If this message was a blessing to you, please consider leaving us a review or sharing the message on social media. Thanks once again for tuning in.